One of, one of my favorite stories uh, is found in a book that's entitled How to Win Over Worry. And it was written by a gentleman named John Haggai. And uh, in this book, it's a story about a gal who, uh, for all intents and purposes, is just kind of an average, average homemaker and mother. She lives outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, she had this one incident happen in her life. And uh, because it happened, she got to make the book. So anyway, what happened was uh, she's, you know, everyday homemaker and mother, just like a lot of you gals, except for she has eight kids. And uh, I guess if you could be an average homemaker and mother with eight kids, I'm not even sure if that's possible. But anyway, uh, what happened, and she has them full, full, the full range as far, as far as ages. And apparently one day she left the eight kids alone while she ran to the store to get some groceries. And for eight kids, I guess she was gone, what, two, three days. Anyway, um, <laughs> when, when she came back, she found that they were all sitting quietly in the middle of her living room floor. And to have eight kids who are quiet, you know something's wrong. I mean, if you got two and they're quiet, you know something's wrong. So, you know, magnify that a little bit uh, with eight. Anyway, they're all sitting around in a circle. They were being very quiet. She couldn't figure out what was going on. And she was concerned. She put the groceries down. She came over and she looked. And she couldn't figure out what was going on. They were laughing, they were playing, they were kidding around. And in the middle of the circle of eight kids, she saw eight baby skunk. I guess they'd be called kittens, but I don't want to call them that because you'll miss what's going on here. So there's these eight baby skunk. And she flipped out. And she said, quick kids, run. And they all grabbed the skunk and ran in eight different directions. <laughs> It's the greatest story. I love that story because if, if, if you've ever been in that situation where it's like you think you're going to fix something that's broke and then the wheels start falling off all around you, how, how many of you have had one of those kind of weeks? You know, you get down to fixing it and it just breaks even more than you could imagine. You know, everything just starts falling apart. And you got two choices at that point. What are they? Huh? Okay, now if you're a woman... You can cry. Now, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to jump in here. Wait a minute. Man, it's an ugly crowd early in the morning. Man, you get ugly quick here, don't you? No, well, what I meant by that was if you're a woman, you could cry. And if you're... Huh? Well, you don't have a skunk. The kids have the skunk. Oh, so you grabbed the skunk, too. Oh, that's a lot of... Mm. Hey, anyway, so here's the deal, right? You have two choices. If you're a woman, you could cry. If you're a man, you can say, what are you crying about? <laughs> right? No, no, you got two choices, right? You can either cry about it or what? You can just laugh about it. And then have somebody come in and air out your house. But, <laughs> but those are the two choices, right? You're going to cry about it. You're going to laugh about it. And, but one thing is, is true. We all go through times like that. On a more somber note, there's a gentleman by the name of Joseph Bailey. Joseph Bailey wrote a couple of books. One of them was entitled A View from a Hearse. And it was written after the second of his teenage children were killed within months of one another. And uh, he wrote a couple of books. One was A View from a Hearse. The other one was A Psalm in a Hotel Room. And he kind of gives us insight as to what was going on in those days as he struggled with the reasons why those things happen in our life. And he wrote this. He said, I'm alone, Lord. I'm all alone. A thousand miles from home. There's no one here who knows my name except the clerk. And he spelled it wrong. No one to eat dinner with, laugh at my jokes, listen to my gripes, be happy with me about what happened today and say, boy, that was great. 
says no one cares. There's just this lousy bed and slush in the street outside between the buildings, and I feel sorry for myself, and I have plenty of reason too. Maybe I ought to say I'm on top of it, praise the Lord, things are great, but they're not, because tonight it's all gray slush. Having spent half of my life on the East Coast, I can relate to what he's talking about as far as gray slush. And if you've ever been there, uh, you know what gray slush is. And uh, it's a very vivid description of what one can have happen in one's life when those types of things are going on. And so as we go through this, I guess I want to get a little more personal, but that's why we're here, and that is to try to find some way that we can make application to deal with, or as we've been talking in this series, this particular one, we'll talk about how do you stand firm when you're discouraged. You know, sometimes it's not the easiest thing to do. Sometimes it's easy to laugh it off. Sometimes you just want to cry. Sometimes you don't know how to feel. Sometimes you're just so numb and you're trying to, trying to discover what it is that happened to you and why it happened. And you go through and you wrestle with all these things. And so, just as a matter of show of hands, how many of you have ever had a gray slush day? Oh, hey, hallelujah. Then I guess uh, whoever hasn't can get up right now and leave. And uh, Tom, I know you may have never had them, but you cause them, so you can stay. So, and, 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 and. Amen. And, and, and his wife says, amen, hallelujah. His wife says, preach it, brother. Go for it. Good, this is great. So if you've, if you've never had one, but you cause them, you might want to stick around and take some notes too. But, uh, you know, I, let me ask you a question. What, what caused your gray slush day? What causes gray slush days? You know, I was just going through jotting some things down, and, you know, there's a lot of things that happen in our lives. You know, we, we look at what Joe Bailey went through. Maybe we've been fortunate and never have had to gone through something like that. But many of us have lost a job at some point in our careers. Many of us have uh, gone through personal injury, whether it's physical or emotional. Some of us have recovered from things as as tragic as divorces or other major illnesses. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to have gray slush days. And some of them are because of what other people go through. I'll never forget three or four years ago when our youngest daughter was real sick with the flu. Took her to the hospital and she's she's just a skinny little runt of a kid. And, well, she's the last one and we feed the others first and (laughs) whatever is, you know. You know, what? What, don't you do it that way? No. (laughs) And, you know, whatever's left kind of gets filtered down there. But she, and she's just a little kid, and uh, she was real sick. And we took her to St. Joseph Hospital. It was Christmas time, and, you know, and you're thinking about the celebration and the gifts and all this kind of stuff. And yet she was in the hospital, and she's so skinny they couldn't find any place to get an IV to go in, and they just kept pinching her and punching her and poking her. And just to go through all that, and it's like, man, those are things that you'll never forget. You know, because you were there, you're going through it. Not only, you know, were you there and you see that, but then you see all the rest of the tragedy that's going on. The kids who are fighting cancer, the kids who are sick and have no hopes of maybe going home. And so, you know, you go through that, and those are the types of things that are gray slush days. And then, then we struggle with things on our jobs. We struggle with working hard to develop a client, and at the last minute we lose that client, or we lose that job, or the contract is pulled, or we have to go through layoffs, or, or you know, you, you fight hard as a real estate broker to get a listing, and, and the listing falls through at the last minute, and you've worked hard to do it. And all those things, you know, that can just poke a hole right in that balloon, man, and just let all the air out. And uh, we've all been there. And so what we need to do is understand that there is some hope 
for all of us who go through gray slush days. And if you've got your Bible, that's probably the best place to start if we're looking for answers on how to deal with this stuff. And in Romans chapter 15, there's good news in there. And the good news is that the Bible helps us to get perspective that's beyond what we see on a horizontal basis. And what I like to, what I like to look at as far as the Bible is concerned is in Romans chapter 15, if, if you're looking for where we're going to be. Romans 15, uh, starting with verse 4. But the way I like to look at the Bible is that, have you ever, how many of you have ever flown in an airplane? Okay, good. All right, I'm trying to come up with something we've all done. Or, okay, if you haven't, how many of you have not flown in an airplane? Okay, a few people. How many of you have, if you haven't flown in an airplane, have you ever driven up to the mountains? Have you ever done that? This is real important. Okay, I mean, I want everybody to be in, involved in this, and I'll keep going until I find what I'm looking for. All right, if not, have you ever gone up an elevator? Now, if you haven't been in an airplane, you probably don't want to go in an elevator that faces outside, you know, and looks outside. But if you've ever been up an airplane, how many of you have ever flown in a, in a stormy kind of a day? You know, one of those kind of days that, you know, just makes you, like, almost wish you had your Bible with you because that'd be the time you'd read it, you know, because you're too busy any other time. Man, I see more people reading Bibles on airplanes. It's the greatest thing in the world. It's like, oh, it's a good place to read it. But uh, anyway, so you're, you're in an airplane, and it's stormy, and it's cloudy, and the wind's blowing, and it's snowing, or it's raining, and it's dark, and you can't see, and the plane starts to go, and it's shaking and bouncing, and it's going all over the place. That's kind of a gray slush day at that particular moment. And then you get this feeling where you go up and out, and you're up above the clouds. All right? You, you've been there? Isn't that like the best feeling in the world when you finally get up there, and the sun is shining, and the clouds are below you, and the turbulence is behind, and the planes is flying nice and smooth, and you can put your Bible away and read People magazine, you know? <laughs> You know, I mean, isn't that the greatest feeling in the world? And, and so you're, you're there. And, and well, I want you to picture that because that's the picture that I get every time I read the Bible. Is that when I'm going through gray slush days, I need somehow to get a perspective that takes me above the clouds and above the storm and above all the commotion that's going on below so I can see a little more clearly what God sees. And that's kind of his perspective of life. Or he can look down through the clouds and he can say, wait a minute, let me give you a new perspective. Let me give you a fresh look at what you're going through. Let me help you and take you above the clouds so you can see what's going on. That's Romans chapter 15. That starts with verse 4. It says this, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whatever was written in earlier times. Specifically what we're going to go through is an illustration of what a, a man in the Old Testament those things were, were written in earlier times, something that he went through a gray slush day in his life to help us to see what God did to bring him through it. See, the reason for the Old Testament and the reason that so many men and women are there and preserved for all of history to view their life is for us to learn from what they went through. See, a lot of people look at the Bible as it's some type of a storybook. 
But I want to make sure that we all understand that the Bible is a collection of books that is historical in nature, that's as valid or more so than any history book that you've ever had all throughout your education process, that the Scripture or the Bible was given for the purpose, according to God, to instruct us or to teach us and to use men and women who lived before us as an example so that we can see how God responded to their situations as they went through ordeals like we do, the gray slush days of life. The Bible is an historical document that is unique from any other book throughout all of history. In fact, I was just reading in the Orange County Register, you may have seen it a couple of days ago, where I think it was the, the Times Book Review, or whatever that board is, did a survey of the most influential or impacting book that people have read. Far and away, the most influential book throughout all of human history has been the Bible. You can't deny it. You can't get away from it. People argue about the interpretation of things. They argue about the validity of certain things. But in reality, throughout history, the most sold book, the greatest seller of all times, whether we use it to, you know, to, to prop up other books or to lay on our coffee table or whatever we're doing with them, the most sold book and bestseller of all times throughout human history is this book right here. What a tragedy it is that we don't realize the value of it until we come together and say, man, you know what? I never realized that this is a book about real people with real problems, about a real God who has a real love and real solutions to what we go through. We just need to take a little more time and dig into it. So what he's saying is that for whatever was written in earlier times was written for the purpose of teaching us, in this particular case today, to teach us how to get through gray slush days. That's what we're going to concentrate on. And he says this, And it was written that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Two promises that God gives us. What are they? Two promises, if you read the Bible and you dig into it and you find out what He's trying to teach you, what does He promise to do for you? Okay, one, He promised to give you life. Because in here, in fact, Jesus said it, in this book are the words that will give life. Not just abundant life, like Jesus said, but an answer to what lies beyond this life. The answer to what's on the other side of the curtain of death. What happens to me when I die? You've got to stop and deal with that if you've never done it, because you're going to die. You just don't know when, but the odds are one to one. You're going to die. And it gives the answers to what happens after you die. But more importantly, not once it answers that, that's not what it dwells on. That's all great, and that's all coming, and that'll give you hope, that'll give you assurance, that gives you confidence. But what God wants to do is deal with you. Okay, that takes care of your future. Now let me help you day to day. Let me help you where you're at. Let me help you where you live. And so he says this. He promises, number one, that he'll give you perseverance. Perseverance. Endurance. The ability to get through your gray slush days. The ability to get through your gray slush weeks. The ability to get through your gray slush years. However long those gray slush, whatever they are, last, God says, hey, I'm going to give you endurance to get through it. And the second thing he says in verse 4 is that I'll give you encouragement. Encouragement means basically what to you? What does it mean? What does it mean if somebody encourages you? You're feeling down, somebody encourages you. What do they do? 
Never had it happen, huh? <laughs> I don't know. Whatever happened. What is that? What is it? What is it? What happens? Support. Okay. Support. Meaning what? Support. Think about the word for a moment. Meaning you're down, you're slumped up. Somebody comes and they jack you up. They hold you up. They keep you from falling and busting your nose. They're giving you support. They, in essence, what they do is they lift you up. Have you ever had one of those phone calls? You're down in the dumps and you call and you talk to a friend. And by the time you hang up, you go, man, you know what? I forgot what I felt bad about. I feel pretty good again. That's encouragement. So basically, here's what you need to pretend for a moment. You can pretend if you want, but you don't even have to do it. You can actually do this. You can just pretend that God is available to you when you're feeling down. You can give him a call. You can turn to the book and you can hear his answer to what you're going through. And he promises this. I'll give you the endurance to go through it, and I'll give you encouragement. I'll lift you up. I'll lift your spirits. I'll take you above the storm and the weather and all the commotion on the ground and all the confusion, and I'll get you up above the clouds to where it's nice and shiny and the sky is blue and the sun is out and you can feel the heat of the sun on the window of your face as you press your face up against it and look down at the clouds, and man, it feels good to be above all this again. That's what he's saying he's going to do. What a great picture of what God's available to do. And it says for this, that we might have hope. That we might have hope. You know what happens to me? When I get discouraged, I lose all hope. I just lose hope. Oh, man, it's just, you know, how am I going to get through this? What am I going to do? How am I going to face all these things? Uh, I just lose hope. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a man who had a grace lush day. Turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, and we'll see how this guy, by the name of Gideon, hung tough, stood firm, during some gray, slush days. Judges chapter 6. We'll pick it up there and we're going to go all over the place, but it's a great story of the truth of what we find in Romans 15. Now, I want you to pay attention to this to see if you can identify with what's going on. But in uh, Judges chapter 6, let's start with verse 1. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. And the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents and they would come in, they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Okay, let's go through it a little bit at a time. What's happening here? And how long is this gray slush day lasting? Okay, seven years. They're having one long gray slush day. It says they were brought low. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so God gave them the hands of Midian for seven years. They're having a seven-year gray slush day. They're bummed, Okay. It says the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Basically, what was happening? Why were they discouraged? Why were they discouraged? Get the answers right in front of you. This is pretty neat how this works. 
Nowhere, you know, I mean, no, seriously, nowhere in your history have you been through an education process where they just let you look right at what you need to answer to get the right answer. You know, because teachers, usually what they try to do is make you feel like they're smarter than you. That's why they have that job, and that's why you're sitting down there. And, uh, you know, and that's how they get tenure, and then that's how you, you never can get rid of them when, I, when they stop teaching. But, um, but that's okay, because basically the way that it works is that you can actually look. It's okay. It's, you can look there, and you can come up with some answers. Now, why were they discouraged? Okay, you know what? And not all teachers stop teaching once they get tenure. Okay. I'm not going to wait till next week to retract certain things. I'll just catch them when I say them. <clears throat> okay, what was the deal? Okay, the Midianites were, at, were against them, right? Oh, woe is me. You never had any of those kind of things happening. I'm all alone. Woe is me. Everybody's surrounding me, and, you know, and I'm all by myself. And I'm being attacked all the time. You know, we've all been through gray slush days like that. What were they doing to them? Okay, where, where were they living? Look at verse 2. Where was Israel living? Okay, they were living in caves because they didn't have homes anymore. So they lost their homes. They're now living in caves, and they're living in caves for seven years. That kind of bummed me out, I think. I don't know if that bummed you out, but it would me. And so that's what they were doing. Now, what else was happening? Okay, they didn't have homes and they didn't have what else? They didn't have any food. You see what it says? Um, verse 4, it says, So they would camp against them, destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. So they had no food. Now, maybe, see, culturally, we, we lose a lot because we go, well, I've never lived in a cave and I don't understand this. Okay, let me put it into terms that you would understand. How many of you work and get a paycheck? Okay. Uh, Okay, how many of you just get a paycheck? <laughs> Another trick question. Sorry. <laughs> but, but stop and think about this for a second. That would be like you going to work, getting your paycheck, and going to the bank and cashing it, and having a Midianite waiting at the bank as soon as you get your check cashed and say, okay, I'll take that now. All right, now does that make more sense? They just say, okay, you go and, and then just take your money. Say, thank you very much, now go back to work and come back next week and I'll be waiting for you. Oh, yeah, so, sounds like the, the early format for our government and tax system. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, yeah, that's why. Now, the thing is, you, you, they do that all the way to October, and then they say, okay, from November to December, you can have what's left. But, uh, whatever. But government forms a good purpose to Romans chapter 13. So if there's any government employees out there, you're the ones who just raised their hand when it said, did you get a check? Not work. You know, some things I just got to do to keep you into the flow of things, you know. Don't believe it for a moment from my heart. <laughs> Ex-government employee. <laughs> okay, so what else was happening? So anyway, so they don't have a place to live. They have no peace in their life. They have no food. And what's the final result? Look at verse 6. What's the final result? Let's put it into terms we all understand. They're bummed out. Right? They're, they're, they're bummed out. They're, they're bought very low. They're just really bummed. You know, you had one of those days and you can relate to what they're going through. So the key is, as we go through this, we understand that they're bummed out. 
Let me change gears a little bit. Turn with me for a moment, a couple of, of chapters ahead, to Judges chapter 21. And we're going to go through and try to discover to some degree what some of the causes are that lead to discouragement. You know what's fascinating as we go through there, there is a definite there is a definite common thread throughout the Bible that God identifies that are common causes of discouragement that will lead to discouragement for all of us. Judges chapter 21. Look at verse 25 for a moment. It sums the whole book of Judges up, and, and I want you to take a look at this for a minute because it's important that we understand it. Judges 21-25 says this, And in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Stop and just think about that for a minute, and I want to just jump ahead, because it's a common problem that's found all throughout Scripture, and that is, Jeremiah 2.8 says this, The priest did not say, Where's the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. In Nehemiah chapter 4, the same thing. It says, thus it was said in Judah that the strength of the burden bearers was failing. I want to throw something out to you to consider as a challenge for a moment. But one of the leading causes throughout all of the Bible for discouragement is something totally different than what you would think. See, we would think loss of home would discourage you, and it does. Loss of food would discourage us, and it would. Loss of a job certainly discourages us. Loss of peace, loss of all those things will discourage. But you know one thing that will discourage more people at, at, at the same time than anything else? And that is a loss of godly leadership. A loss of godly leadership. Because when there is no standard and there are no moral absolutes, and there are no things that are right and things that are wrong, and when everything is relative to the individual, then what the summation of the book of Judges says is that there was no godly leadership in all of Israel, and guess what happens to people? They all do what's right in their own eyes. There's no standards. There's no morals. There's no absolutes. And what's fascinating to me is, while I may have a grace lush day on a specific, for a specific, specific reason, all of us will have grace lush days collectively when we live in a society that no longer teaches moral absolutes or standards by which we're to govern our existence by. Boy, if that doesn't sound like our culture, I don't know what does. Nothing's right, nothing's wrong. It's whatever you think is right, whatever you think is wrong, and what was wrong for you yesterday isn't wrong for you today because now you're in that situation and now you can understand why it's not wrong. It's amazing how that is when there's a loss of standards. I've told you about my friend who left his wife and two kids and, one, and his wife is pregnant, and it's like at one point in his life he said, I'd never leave my wife. That's wrong. Today it's not wrong anymore because I don't understand. He understands why it's not wrong because that's what he's doing and he's chosen to do. So now it's okay. 
You see how this works? If we live in a society that has no moral absolutes, has no standard in which to operate and to govern ourselves by, then nothing's right, nothing's wrong, everything is relative. And it is so disgusting to see it, and we read about it every day in the newspaper, of how someone can kill somebody else, and yet our judicial system will say, I wish I could do more, but I can't, so you got three, three years probation. What a tragedy. You know what that says about the value of human life? That's not worth anything. That's why Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, which was inspired by God and moved by God and written by the Spirit of God, he said this, when justice isn't carried out swiftly, the, the hearts of men will grow to evil. That's what's happening all around us. Why were they discouraged? Because there was no one, there were no men and women of God who were standing up against the flow of the direction, that way, the way things are going, stopping in the mainstream and saying, listen, this is ludicrous, we need to get back to a society that has values, that has uh, standards, that has moral absolutes, and we need to make sure that everybody identifies what they are. But we don't. Because we say stupid things like, who am I to judge? Well, if somebody doesn't start doing something, then anything that's happening to people around you is going to happen to you. And then you know what you're going to say? This is a tragedy. What is happening to our society that something like this could happen to my family? All I'm saying is, let's be a little more vocal before it happens to your family because you know what happens when it happens to your family? People just listen to you as, well, you're just crying sour grapes because you're a victim. But I'll tell you what, they listen to you when you're not a victim. They'll listen to you when you stand up for victims. They'll listen to you when, when you're not in the middle of something saying, wait a minute, this is nonsense. When are we going to start doing something about this? See, why are we so discouraged as people? It's fascinating to me that God doesn't deal with symptoms. You know what I mean? He does, and, and, and we'll deal with that more specifically. But what he's saying is, let's stop losing sight of the big picture. Let's stop getting caught up in the condom issue of the moral situation there and let's go back to the big picture. See, Martina Navratilova came out this week and blasted a double standard that's taking place all throughout society and people will say, you know what? What she said made a lot of sense. If a woman slept with that many men, she would be a, a cheap whore is what she said, basically. And look at the double standard that we have. And I say, you know what? That's a great point. But what she was saying was the only reason she'd get blasted is because she has openly expressed her homosexuality. And what I say is, you know what, you made a good point about double standards, but you're missing the big picture, and that is as far as God's morality is concerned. And you're wrong, and magic's wrong, and the whole thing is wrong. And so what happens is we start dealing with symptoms instead and get back to the root and say, look, we wouldn't even have to deal with the symptoms if the root problem was addressed. And that is there are still standards according to the Word of God that God still goes by because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed His mind about anything that you'll read in here. His justice has changed somewhat and we thank God for His grace that we find in the New Testament. But as far as His standards are concerned, consequences are the same for sin, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, but God's grace is sufficient and that He is greater than all of those things and we just need to turn to Christ because we need new hearts. We don't need uh, new systems or symptoms we just need a change of heart our problem has always been throughout human history we have a heart condition that needs to be made right when the heart changes then the outside activity should follow so let's stop dealing and band-aiding things and let's start dealing with the heart again but the reality of what she was saying was as smart as it sounded to the world gee that made a lot of sense to God's people it should be well that doesn't make any sense either 
Because we're still not dealing with the root problem. And so as we go through it, God deals with the root problem, and He talks about other issues, and you can look at these, but we see that they had a loss of security. We get discouraged when our security is taken away from us. Why do you think people get so depressed when they lose money? Why do people get so discouraged when they lose a job that produces income for them? Why do you think that happens? Because there's a certain sense of security that comes with having those things that can meet our tangible physical needs. When those things are pulled away from us, we're stripped bare, we have no way to meet those, you can get bummed out real quick. And that's understandable. And God understands that. But He also has something to say about where we place all of our faith, where we put all of our weight, where we're leaning as far as our security is concerned. But we also see that there's a loss of vision. And in Nehemiah 4, it said, boy, you know, the rubbish is piling up. We got half the wall done and we're really getting discouraged because we're being attacked and the work's being attacked and we're just not getting this done. And so there was a loss of vision. We forget why we're doing what we're doing. It's the reason why we get discouraged. It's the reason why a guy leaves his family to go do what he wants to do because he forgets why he goes to work and puts up with the things that he puts up with. He forgets the reason why. And every time I get discouraged like that, I reach in my wallet and I pull out a picture of my family and I remember why I put up with the things that I put up with because they kind of count on me. And that's my responsibility. And so every time I come home and, I'm, and, and, I, and I usher any frustration about taking care of them, what it does to them is it discourages them because it takes away their sense of security and that they have a husband and a father who love them and care for them and they're going to go out and do what they need to do to take care of them. So I would suggest as any man who's responsible for his household that we're very cautious about how much we complain about taking care of our family because it erodes a sense of security that our family have in counting on us to do what we're supposed to do and what's right before God. You want to have your spouse as your best friend. You want to be able to discuss things. But some things maybe aren't the smartest things to discuss when it's just a matter of babbling and complaining and moaning and groaning. You might as well do that with a friend who's going through the same thing and then turn it around and say, okay, now that we got that out of the way, let's remember why we're doing what we're doing. Let's stop feeling sorry for ourselves. But we all go through it. And as a result, there's a loss of strength and confidence that follows and you just want to throw up your hands and say, I've had enough of this and I'm going to go buy the Porsche and, and, the, and my, my shirt and my gold jewelry and find a nice young chick who's looking for security in me. <laughs> and how stupid that is, huh? But can you imagine that for a moment? Think about that for a second, right? That's the most amazing thing. Here's a guy who wants no responsibility Turn into a woman who wants, wants somebody who's responsible and can be, you know, a provider and provide security. And she's too dumb to see that he just ditched the last group that he was with and thinks that she'll be different. <laughs> we live in a great world. But anyway, so let's, let's kind of get to some guidelines that we can provide. Because without guidelines and without application, the rest of it is meaningless. It'd be like uh, me going to my buddy Ellsberg, who's a physician, and saying, Ellsberg, can you find out why I'm bleeding to death? And he locates the artery, and there's blood gushing all over the place. And he says, that's the one we need to clamp and sew up. And I say, well, thanks for locating it for me, but I hate stitches. So I'll be catching you next time. What? Does that sound stupid? I hope it does, because it was meant to, but that's what we do. 
oh man, I'm discouraged. I'm discouraged with what's going on in my life, and yet I know the Bible has some direction, but then I read what it says to do, and I don't like to, I'd rather not do that because I'm afraid of stitches, so I think I'll just bleed to death. It's your choice. But it's kind of of dumb though, doesn't it? So here's what we need to do. Number one, five guidelines. First one, we need to recognize what caused our discouragement. Recognize what caused your discouragement. Now, that's like saying, okay, let, let me try to identify how I end up ripping this artery. It's real important that I know that so I don't do the same thing again next time. You know, it's just not a smart thing to do. So, in Judges 6, 6 through 10, this is what he says. It says, that Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Well, we already saw that. And they're just kicking their butt for seven years and they don't have anything to eat. They, can't, they don't have anywhere to live. And they're just really bummed out. So, you know, what you do... I mean, after seven years of being bummed out, you decide, I think I need to turn to God for help. I mean, seven years is pretty standard, don't you think? Think about that for a moment. They waited seven years. They were bummed out, but they thought, well, you know, I think we can work our way through this. But they couldn't. So it says, when the Israelite cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent him a prophet who said, well, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. But you have not listened to me. Let me ask you a question. What was the cause of their discouragement? They disobeyed. This is great. This is so easy. This is what's wonderful about it. Anybody could sit down and read this stuff. So it says, hey, but you have not listened to me. The cause of their discouragement was disobedience to God. God said, man, you know what? If you'd have just listened to me, you wouldn't be dealing with all these consequences right now. Your discouragement is a self-inflicted wound. And there's probably no worse discouragement to go through than the discouragement that we face when we have to deal with a self-inflicted wound. When there was no need for it, we had control over whether we would have to go through it and we just end up making bad decisions. See, magic is a self-inflicted wound. No matter how you look at it, no matter what you think about the individual, his wound is a self-inflicted wound. And there is no greater discouragement than to have a self-inflicted wound and say, you know, I had control over my behavior and I chose to do what I did, and now I reap the consequences of it, and man, that's probably the most frustrating thing for any of us to go through. F.B. Meyer writes this, This is the bitterest of all. To know that the suffering need not have been, that it has resulted from indiscretion and inconsistency, that it is the harvest of one's own sowing, that the vulture which feeds on the vitals is a nestling of one's own rearing. Oh, man. That's pain. There is an inevitable nemesis in life. The laws of the heart and home of the soul and human life cannot be violated with impunity. Sin may be forgiven. The fire of penalty may be changed into the fire of trial. The love of God may seem nearer and dearer than ever, and yet there is an awful pressure of pain. The trembling heart, the failing of eyes, and the pinning of soul. About a month ago or so, I came home on a Wednesday afternoon and, oh, it was a Tuesday afternoon. 
and our lawn was cut and everything was done. And uh, we have a gardener who does these things, but he usually does them on Wednesday. And so it was done on Tuesday. And I couldn't figure out why he'd do it on Tuesday. And I waited till the next week to see if he'd come back on Wednesday or Tuesday or see what was going on. And he didn't come back on Wednesday. He came back on Tuesday, but it was in the middle of the day, so I didn't see him. Linda wasn't there, so she didn't see him. And so this went on for like two or three weeks until we saw one of our neighbors. One of our neighbors said, did you hear what happened? And I said, no. She said, no, what happened? I said, well, Julian, who was our gardener, blew his brains out. And, and, and you know how you just get that sick feeling, you know? Because we knew him. We knew him for a long time. We knew his kids. We, you know, it's kind of one of those things where when they needed stuff, you kind of give them clothes and bikes and stuff, you know? And she said, well, he blew his brains out. And I couldn't figure out what kind of gray slush day this guy was having that he wanted to blow his brains out. And a few weeks went by, and then the pieces started to fall into place. Turned out that Julian had a wife and five kids, and he also had a girlfriend who was pregnant on the side. And he was trying to support his family and trying to support her, and she ended up taking a bunch of money from him and, and telling him to hit the road, and he just couldn't handle it. And he blew his brains out. You know, it's, it's sad, you know, and it's, and it's a tragedy. But they're the kind of tragedies that happen all throughout life. And I thought about that as an illustration because, you know, the sad reality of it is is that that was a wound that preceded the final wound that was self-inflicted. And see, we get to that point where we start to turn and wonder how do you deal with self-inflicted wounds because we've all screwed up. You know, we've all made mistakes. We've all inflicted uh, damage to ourselves in a variety of ways. And I thought, you know, what a, what a great way to, to kind of summarize what we're going to do today and then pick up again next week. But how do you handle a self-inflicted wound? Turn with me to Psalm 51. We'll close on this. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm that was written by David, the king of Israel, after he had a self-inflicted wound. And I'll tell you what, if you've ever inflicted damage to yourself, there is a lot of hope that you're going to find in this particular passage of Scripture. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, David chose to sin against God. He had an adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. And to cover that relationship, he had her husband killed. So not only was David an adulterer, but he was also a murderer. And he went through a lot of discouragement because of a self-inflicted wound. And if that was the end of the story, we could all walk out of here with one big grace lush day. But it's not. But God wants us to learn from his mistake so that we can see that God will give us endurance to go through difficult times and encouragement so that he can lift us up above it. And that's what we find in Psalm 51. David writes this. And keep in mind the background because it makes a lot more sense. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse from me my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And against thee and thee alone have I sinned. And I've done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part thou wilt make known thy wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me, O God, a clean heart. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. And do not cast me away from thy presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. But thou art not pleased with a burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A couple of things. Number one, we just need to acknowledge before God what we've done that's wrong. It sounds so simple, but yet it's so hard. We need to acknowledge before God what we have done. God, I made a big mistake. God, I blew it. And the only way I know that I blew it is because I measure it against the standard that you set. It's not a matter of whether everyone votes that I blew it or not. It's not a matter of whether I can get more people to agree that I didn't blow it than I did blow it. It's a matter of looking at something objective and saying, God, you said that's wrong and I did it and so therefore I'm guilty. And that's the difference between God's standard and our performance. That's sin. Acknowledge before God that you have done what is wrong. And he said, you know what he said? Hey, my sin is always before me. See, a person who has come to know Christ and is a child of God, you can't do what's wrong before God without the Holy Spirit of God who lives within you convicting you on a regular basis that what you're doing is wrong. So your sin is always before you, so you might as well just acknowledge it to God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the big if is, will we agree with God that what we did was wrong? And he says... Acknowledge it before God. God, I blew it. I made a big mistake. And I'm sorry for what I did. And you know what he says? The sacrifices of God. I came from a background that when you did something wrong, you had to do something to make it right. Okay? Whatever it was, if you did something wrong, you had to do something to make it right. You know? You had to say these prayers. You had to do this, that. Or you had to give something in return. But somehow you always had to make something right. Because you did it, now you make it right. But see, what God is saying is, wait a minute. That's not what I'm looking for. God's saying, if you blew it, I'm not looking for you to somehow or another say, okay, God, I'll go out and try to make something right. What he's saying is, the sacrifice that pleases God is a broken heart. It's a heart that, that, that cries out before God, I have sinned before you, I have done what is wrong. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. And he says, a broken and contrite heart, God will never despise. He'll never turn back. He'll always accept. 
And that's wonderful news because some of us can't undo the things that we've done. And the word of excitement and encouragement to me is, God doesn't ask you to undo what you've already done. Jesus undid that for you. That's why he died on the cross. But what he's saying is, number one, acknowledge your sin before God. From a broken and a contrite heart, ask God to forgive you. And you know what he says? That you'll never be despised. That God will forgive you for what you've done. And now, you talk about getting out of discouragement. Man, there's nothing better than that. Knowing that you're forgiven for all the stupid things that you've done. And that's why he says, he says, you know what? And then, I'll tell others of this wonderful forgiveness. And then, you'll draw people to yourself. Isn't that great? Romans 15, let's close on this because... It ties it all together. Romans 15. 4 through 6. Last thought. <clears throat> for whatever is written in earlier times was written for, written for our instruction. We learn from the life of Gideon and uh, that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope we see hope from what he went through. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, it's a gift from God. It's not something we work up on our own, but God actually gives it to us. Grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See what happens? When God takes you through the gray slush days, all that he asks that you do is just give him thanks. God, thanks. Thanks. Thanks that I don't have to do anything. Thanks that you did everything. I don't understand it, but thanks. Next week we'll look at, can one person really make a difference as we talk about standing firm when discouraged? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time that we could be together. And uh, thank you for the life of Gideon as we get into it uh, in this session and next, that we can see how you just work through and bring us up and above the clouds of discouragement. We're just grateful that all we need to do for self-inflicted wounds is to acknowledge before you that we created the problem. That you are justified any way that you choose to judge us because we violated your laws and standards. And that if you choose to show your grace upon us and take the, the, uh, the fire of judgment and turn it into a fire of trial, we're just grateful for that. Lord, we thank you that uh, there's nothing that we can do to make up for the wrongs that we've done, but that because Jesus died for our sins and that we can trust in him, that you tell us that all the sins of yesterday, today, and even tomorrow are taken care of at the cross. We just thank you that you give us hope as we learn through your instruction, that you give us endurance, and we just, as we look at its end result, we just ask for the strength and the courage just to praise your name, just to tell you simply, thank you. And we just thank you for this time and for your word in Christ's name. Amen.